happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. Welcome to the EdTech Situation Room for September the 12th, 2017, episode 107, what is bound to be the shortest episode in the history of our podcast because my partner in podcasting, Jason Neifer in Missoula, Montana, has another event that will be coming up at the top of the hour, and I was talking to one of the representatives running for our local legislature on my porch and lost track of the time. So, Jason... How is your evening, and are you ready to tweet it up uh, for your special? Aren't you a featured? You're, you're featured in this uh, Twitter chat, are you? Not? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm still trying to figure out what what our master plan was there, but I am attending Idaho Ed Chat tonight, and uh, ID Ed Chat for those of you that want to join in and talking a little bit about the NCC conference coming up in February in fabulous Seattle, uh, Washington, and um, I've actually spent a little bit of time uh, digging through. Um, some of the Apple news from earlier today, so I wonder at least we can get first looks of, of what that's that's uh, looking for. To give you kind of the, the big picture perspective on the podcast, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a podcast that takes a look at news headlines and kind of shoots them through the educational prism, hoping to find clarity in our discussion each week. And you can always find links and the stuff that we're reading and talking about at our website, edtechsr.com. And where, Dr. Fryer, would you like to start this evening? Well, Jason does have an incredibly impressive looking microphone, but as we, as, as those of you listening to it may know, um, we, we possibly may start a donation, uh, fund for, you know, maybe we'll get him a Mac laptop. Maybe we'll. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only they didn't break just after buying them. So, uh, speaking of, should we start off with some quick Apple news tonight? Sure. Let's, let's do that. I'll admit I've only seen the first 20 minutes of the event. I actually was as usual at work, completely covered up, but I am pretty excited about the, I guess it's a full blown EKG, ECG was the acronym that they used, FDA approved. Um, I, I, I dropped an article, um, why an Apple Watch with EKG matters from The Verge on September 12th. So that sounds pretty cool. And I mean, it's, it's a redesigned watch. So in the fourth generation, you don't often want to get a first generation Apple device. Right. I've, I've held off, but I think the temptation, especially not only with the fitness, but, but the bio and anyway, it's just so cool. I'm, I'm sold. So I'm ready to ask Santa. How about you? Are you ready to ask Santa as well? Uh, I am not ready to ask Santa yet, although the thing that I will say, and I think I've mentioned this in previous weeks related to uh, the Apple Watch, I am surprised how much staying power excuse me, this particular platform has had because the people that I know that have purchased Apple Watches, the vast majority of them are still wearing Apple Watches, where um, I, you can't say that at all about its uh, counterpart, the Android Wear Watch ecosystem, of which I am a buyer of, I might add. But it seems like that, that there has been definitely something captured by the, the Apple for the Apple Watch user. And I did have a little bit of time to look at... Um, uh, some of the announcements related to the Apple Watch. It sounds like a number of additional sensors and a better screen, um, a larger edge-to-edge -edge display is going to be part of this, although it's uh, going to be slightly thinner and um, a processor that's two times faster. Um, but uh, I will say that, <laughs> excuse me, it's a... Um, 
it's definitely a big cost item. The standard model is $399 and $499 for the Series 4 watch. And so uh, interesting that they are going um, largely in that direction. Um, and, and Wes, do you notice that too, that Apple Watch people tend to, to stick with the Apple Watch? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, it's I don't, how many years has it been out? Is this the third year or the second year? I don't know how many. I th- well, it's, Third or fourth. It may it's maybe entering the fourth year because it's the fourth generation and Apple comes out with a new you know kind of a new product every year so that that may be a good bet. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's ditched it and said, oh, I I just hate this. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's a sign of the growing Internet of Things. Um, we had uh, mentioned a futurist a few episodes back who was talking about 2018 being um, Amy Webb, the peak year of the smartphone, and that we're just going to continue to see more and more wearable devices and things, you know, they're going to be in our glasses and are going to be on our bodies. And so, yeah, I think Apple's capitalizing on it. They're in the right market at the right time, and they're continuing to iterate, right? That's what we've seen happen, and it does happen with smartphones and, and all kinds of products, but they're just they're doing a good job iterating. And I didn't see the FaceTime video conferencing. I don't think that was announced. Um, I haven't seen the whole event yet. That's still my, my event, my thing that I want. But, yeah, I'm ready to, to take the leap because the ways in which technology can – can benefit our lives, and I'll I'll have a moment of personal disclosure, showing my age, and say that I have been uh, diagnosed with sleep apnea and have gotten a CPAP, um, you know, which is like this air breathing machine that I sleep with at night. And just this last week, um, thanks to my prior service to our country in the Air Force, um, I'm able to get some help through the VA, and they were uh, able to give me this machine. I was renting one for for uh, almost a month. And anyway, this one is connected to cellular. They're able to to monitor it, and they've even been able to, I think, to manage it and change some of the stuff remotely. I haven't logged in yet, but it's going to give me very detailed reports um, uh, on how many events that I have and just you know how many hours I sleep and all that kind of stuff. And on the one hand, that stuff can can feel creepy, and it can also be like, oh gosh, I hope that I don't get hacked and all my information doesn't go out to the world. Hey, we're, it's already happened. It was Equifax. It was the U.S. intelligence community. I think I think we should all just relax because you know we've all we've so many of us have been hacked already. I'm being a little tongue in cheek there, um, but I think that the ways in which technology can make a huge difference for our health and to give sure. us better real time data and and that's it's just gigantic. And so I'm excited to see the Apple Watch a part of that, and I'm ready to participate and not just be a spectator for that aspect of technology in our lives. Sure. And then very quickly, um, by the way, is my audio any better? It's still, I don't know. Those of you that are listening can give us some feedback on how that, on how it sounds, but it's just, uh, just I don't know. It sounds really big, kind of tinny. So. Well, and what's really interesting about it is that I'm, I'm on my I'm on a Chromebook, which is plugged into a a dock. It's the same setup I've had for the last you know five or six weeks, and I for somehow somehow lost some controls in the back panel here that I wonder if and I don't think I'm even running a, a beta version of this either. So I'm wondering if I did myself in somehow <laughs> on the way this works. So I will try to not start screaming, which is my usual way of of, of podcasting, is to get into my large room voice, but. Um, one other thing to note, uh, they did end up releasing what I think are the silliest named for, or phones from Apple yet, the iPhone XS and the iPhone XS Max. 
um, which kind of sounds like early Android phones. Remember all the crazy names that uh, the the Prime, you know, uh, Prime Droid Phone X Niner, um, and they're also releasing a uh, kind of a, a, a low end version, I guess, maybe low end in, in quotation mark, which is the iPhone XR, which comes in six colors and starts at, at seven forty nine. And they're also continuing to sell the iPhone seven at four forty nine and the iPhone eight at five ninety nine. Um, which, you know, there is nothing particularly exciting about the, the phone announcements today other than they are expanding to a third third X phone, I think, in an attempt to, um, you know, try to capture more of that lower-end market that seems to have been left behind by the iPhone X. So um, related to that, iOS 12 will be released on September 17th. We actually have an article in the notes tonight where you can download that now. It's out of beta now and available uh, to any user, um, which is, if I were still an iPhone user, probably something I'd be doing literally right now if after I read that article. But so if you're interested in the new features of iOS 12, you can download that right now. Well, do you think so? Because there have been some issues with recent iOS versions, and I've actually started to just hesitate a little bit. I mean, I learned that with the main operating system when I was right. running more client-based software. Now I'm almost exclusively web-based with everything, so it doesn't matter. But um, – you. Yeah, do you do you think people should should pause? Because I think my advice to folks, especially wasn't it iOS 11 that was like slowing people down and things, is has been to just kind of wait a little bit and and see. So maybe Apple's figured that out this time, but who knows? Uh, yeah, I, I I hope so too. Um, I, I probably would still download it right away. And and to be honest, I usually download the the um, Mac OS uh, updates usually right away too. But I, again, I'm not a standard user, right? Like if my if my iMac at work goes down, then I'll just you know move to my Chrome Chromebook right next to it, right? So that's that's one of the reasons why I tend to be a little more cavalier about it. I think the wait and see model is actually a, a, a much wiser approach um, uh, to go about that process. Um, I was surprised today to hear there were no additional new Macs because those had been uh, rumored, particularly MacBook Airs were said to be to be potentially refreshed, so I was surprised to hear that that was not part of the announcements today. Um, there was also some energy around the Mac Mini that that, that that might receive a refresh, and while they've definitely done October events before, so it would not surprise me, especially since they don't need to book a venue anymore, um, that they could just surprise us with an October event. I am a little surprised in light of the fact that the September announcements each year tend to be their focus on Christmas. And maybe, honestly, they don't care about laptops anymore in regards to holidays. They may have some persuasive data that no one's buying laptops for Christmas gifts anymore. And so that's that's a, a good for another time of year. But I do hope that, that Apple's headed into the direction of maybe some hardware refreshes uh, with laptops. Absolutely. Well, I think, again, not having seen the whole keynote, but just focusing on those two products, the iPhone and the watch, I think that's actually great, right? Apple has a really broad portfolio, and when they try to pack everything into even a two-hour event, um, it's just a lot. So I would expect there to be some refreshes based on the rumors that we've heard and, and different kinds of developments. I do want to mention a really exciting rumor article, and this was from Apple Insider um, yesterday on September 11th. Apple continues research on combining iPhone, iPad, with MacBook style accessory. And so this is from a patent filing that um, Apple filed last year, actually on September 20th, 2016. 
Um, and so it shows basically an iPhone being put in the place of the trackpad um, and then, you know, being able to have a touchscreen on the laptop and then using the phone as a, as a touchscreen. And I, I think this kind of thing is pretty, you know, it's hugely exciting. And, and I've told the story before of, of my uh, coworker at school who, you know, dabbles with the windows phone and, and has done that with an adapter, being able to have a full blown windows desktop, you know, he plugs in his phone. So nothing on that yet, but like you said, I would not give up hope because I think, Apple strategically, you know, may just not need to talk about everything at one event. And, right. and, and then that's going to think about that, too. That's going to generate more splash and, and more PR. Right. It's going to be focused PR because anytime Apple's going to do an event, there's all kinds of excitement around it. So I, I think it's probably a smart thing for them not to try to pack too many things, especially if they're new things into the same event. Right, absolutely. So, and then one last um, last email or last email. One last article. I think is probably worth uh, having a conversation about is that uh, Mac Rumors uh, reported on September seventh that um, Apple starting to openly talk about and starting to to lobby legislators uh, to talk about specific items that are likely to be more expensive due to the increase of tariffs as part of our kind of uh, burgeoning trade war in, in, in the United States with um, uh, many nations, but focused on China. And in particular, the Apple Watch, AirPods, the HomePod, the Mac Mini, and other items are specifically said to likely be more expensive in that context. And apparently Tim Cook, um, who has been in, in contact with the Trump administration at, at a number of levels, including directly when uh, President Trump has invited in uh, CEOs and other leaders of tech companies, uh, he's been very clear that that's, that that's the likely scenario, is the consumers will face increased pricing. Um, I, I find this interesting for a, a number of other reasons uh, than, than just the increase in expense, because I think it's, it's a little complicated here. It's easy to say that the reason why it's more expensive in the United States is because labor is more expensive here, although slowly and surely labor pricing is starting to increase uh, in China. We will get parity for some time yet, maybe not even for a decade or so, but, but definitely incomes are increasing in China, and that's making a lot of products more expensive due to the labor involved. But the other piece that's also interesting is that uh, I've read over and over and over and over again that one of the things that Silicon Valley takes advantage of as part of Chinese supply chains is not just that labor is cheaper there, but because there's a lot of industrial cities in China where you could place a factory within just a few city blocks of the entire supply chain. And so uh, products don't need to be uh, shipped around the world to be completed uh, in this particular case, it's not just the assembly of, let's say, a, an Apple Watch or an AirPod in the United States. Like bringing those jobs back to the United States uh, you know, it certainly has merit, but it's not just, that's, that's not gonna be the only issue. The only issue, the other issue is that the dozens, maybe hundreds of parts and even the tiniest of devices, they can't be sourced in the United States. And so they're gonna have to be shipped over here anyways separately. Um, that's gonna increase time of development and release. And, you know, obviously the, the global trade phenomenon is a very large onion of, with many, many, many layers to unpeel. But I do find it interesting that we're starting to put it in context of this product or that product is likely to face an increased price due to those tariffs. Absolutely. And I've been hearing, you know, several tech podcasts recently talking about just 
how either naive or just misleading some administration folks are being when they're talking about these jobs coming back to America and the, this idea that suddenly, you know, global supply chains and the whole world is flat. You know, reality can be can be changed quickly because there's a lot of reasons for that. It's the number of engineers um, as well as, you know, the workers and then the infrastructure that's required and all of those kinds of things. Um, we may go a little bit faster with articles just to, to kind of cover a few more things tonight. Yeah, I want to definitely jump down to some social media correction articles. That's what we've got these placed under. Um, and the, uh, the first one, and I actually am not completely through this article. This is a long article, but this is the New Yorker uh, in its um, September 17th edition. So it's actually it's it's, uh, you know, up, up and coming issue. Uh, most recent. Can Mark Zuckerberg fix Facebook before it breaks democracy? Um, the author, Evan Osnos, spent a, quite a bit of time um, interviewing and being with Zuckerberg over you know, the past few months. And it is really a fascinating dive um, into him specifically. And then Facebook overall, you know, they say 2.2 billion people right now are on Facebook. That is a third of the folks on our planet. It's more people than they ha we have in the, in the entire Christian religion or faith. And it is unprecedented in the history of our planet. We've never had that many people together in a single thing. And so... Um, the challenges that they're facing, um, they have some really, you know, good points about these are not, you know, just technology things. These are, are really, you know, basic human kinds of issues. Um, it says these are not technical puzzles to be cracked in the middle of the night, but some of the subtlest aspects of human affairs, including the meaning of truth, the limits of free speech and the origins of violence. So uh, this is a great, great article. And I think that, you know, this kind of discussion needs to be a part of our digital citizenship discussions, you know, in schools and what we're seeing un unwrap as we've got more testimony before Congress. This is the whole idea of, of the term that Jason has, has, has coined in terms of a social media correction. You know, Silicon Valley was able to evolve with relatively little oversight and little regulation. We had some behemoth companies, you know, grow and now um, we're, we're really trying to figure out because we don't know, you know, how can these work when you've got such outlier voices and you've got so many challenges to, you know, deciding what gets amplified, what gets shared, who gets banned. Um, you know, how do you identify bad actors and, and how do you, you censor content? So, Jason, have you been tempted at all to delete your Facebook account as a result of the social media correction? Um, it's funny you should mention that because, no, I've not been tempted to do that, but I did take a step. Um, I tend and I, I kind of feel like that I am the uh, the Android uh, crutter upper, and what I mean by that is that it feels like two or three months after every time I, I, I start with a fresh install of Android on an Android phone, it starts to slow to uh, a crawl, and if I just, you know, start over again and, and restore from a backup, it's oftentimes much faster. I did that last weekend, and I decided I had been using the Facebook Lite app on my Android phone because it was a lot faster. Well, I deleted both apps off my phone, and I'm now only using the mobile uh, web version of, of, of that particular software. And um, it, it, I, I'm not saying it's made me objectively happier because it hasn't, but uh, I will say that you know I feel like that I do spend a lot more time on Instagram now than Facebook, anyways, because it's a you know kind of a some 
uh, you know, some brain candy that is, is you know, interesting to, to kind of scroll through. But, you know, I, I find myself at least scaling back that use. Uh, more importantly, my wife, who came up with a strategy about a year ago that's been very effective for her, she only uses the web version too, but she also has a 20-character random password that she's not memorized nor she saved anywhere digitally, and she has to type it in each time to get inside of, of the, the piece. And so she, I think she told me the other day that it's been a month since she's been in Facebook, so, um, and, and feels happier because of it. So, um, yeah, I the correction's real, um, and then, you know, like at the same time, the correction's happening between you know, the thing you're talking about with Facebook and, and trying to figure out a way to be more moderated in the way it deals with elections. Uh, the news posted last week that I think might have actually happened uh, before our show, maybe right after our show, um, Alex Jones from InfoWars has been permanently banned from Twitter now due to a variety of, of violations uh, uh, in behavior. And it kind of sounds like that Mr. Jones was actually trying to get banned, like trying to be provocative, maybe to make a point later. But um, you know, like I like as as much as I think that we do need to eliminate bad actors out of any platform. You know, where do we draw that line? You mentioned earlier, like the bannings of real di digital citizenship conversation, and it's not just Mr. Jones. Uh, uh, Reddit, which is something I'm trying to get back into to use as a good tool to try to counterbalance the less than great things on there, a subreddit. Um, uh, called Great Awakening, which is a kind of a conspiracy theorist. Um, uh, a subreddit has been banned. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I not I tend to be lean towards free speech as a always a good thing, but um, you know, it, it, these new platforms really do change the nature of, of of what free speech looks like and how we acknowledge it and how we utilize it inside of our culture. And part of the discussion that's so fascinating and important about all this is these companies are not countries, right? Facebook or Reddit right. or Twitter are not subject to the same kinds of rules and guidelines that a public school or a government or, you know, a state or, or a nation state is going to be subject to. And so it is um, important to see the example that is, is uh, you know, I guess, cast or, or put forward by companies. Um, one of the articles we've got in, in the show notes is Apple Insider, September 10th. Facebook followed Apple's lead on Alex Jones' purge. Um, so that was when Zuckerberg really, you know, took the action was, you know, after Apple went ahead and did this. Um, and so, you know, it's the the ethics and, and the sense of morality that leaders in these companies have is really important. And the ways in which these are going to have impacts around the world are really important. Right. I want to point out that a couple articles that are just really mind blowing about how horrible social media can be. You, you might've been hearing about, um, Oh, it's Myanmar, formerly Burma and the ways in which Facebook was used to fan the flames of what's now considered a genocide. The United Nations has sent inspectors there and is trying to hold, you know, military leaders and others accountable for this genocide of, um, of a Muslim minority. <clears throat> this is an article about India. It's from BuzzFeed News on September 9th. Vicious rumors spread like wildfire on WhatsApp and destroyed a village. And so they basically had these images and videos and reports on WhatsApp in this small uh, community um, talking about uh, kidnapping of kids. And so there were five mar migrant laborers from a neighboring village 
um, that were uh, passing through this tribal hamlet 200 miles northeast of Mumbai. And so they, um, they were lynched. And so this, you know, is, is a, is a really dramatic story of how, you know, fake news, false news, misinformation, and, and in some cases, perhaps information that's intentionally shared to fan, fan flames. You know, I think about the, the genocide in Rwanda, right? The radio was huge in fanning the flames between the Hutus and the Tutsis and getting folks to, to grab their machetes and go out and kill people. And so social media is, is playing that same kind of role. And then there's one more article. I haven't heard of this source before. It's Pointer, but this is from September 10th. And the headline is, um, these fact checkers were attacked online after partnering with Facebook. And so it's in Brazil, but there were 40 different journalists who basically agreed that they were going to help, you know, police content on Facebook. But then um, this PDF that's almost three, that's 300 pages long was created and it went viral among right wing groups. And it uh, basically, you know, put, paints a target on these journalists and they faced all kinds of, of attacks, abuse, um, death threats. And again, it's social media being used in, in really, um, you know, harsh ways in this case to try and silence voices and to try and, and, you know, not just shape the conversation, but to absolutely shut people down and intimidate people from expressing their views. And so this is not something just happening in the United States. This is a global phenomenon. There's 2.2 billion people on Facebook, but it's happening with WhatsApp. It's happening with these other kinds of platforms. And so the choices that the leaders of these organizations are going to make, the choices that our, our you know, politicians and, and legislative leaders in the United States are going to make, um, and then what other countries are going to do? You know, what is Europe going to do? What are, what are other countries going to do? Um, wow, it is just an incredible time of upheaval and disruption, and I would say not not all in a positive way. I mean, far cry from, from positive in terms of all of these things. Absolutely, and you know, and I, I think this is why you know we we need to be extremely cautious too about what we kind of front as solutions to this, right? We've mentioned this uh, probably a dozen times on the, on, on the podcast in the past, but obviously there is a role here in, in government, I think, to help regulate. But one of the things that I think is overwhelmingly true about regulators in this case is that they don't understand a lot of these technologies. And, you know, that's why I think as citizens, we, we need to be both informed about this and then also keep an eye on proposed suggestions to deal with this, right? Like I, um, I, I think about this in context of all, you know, all the uh, uh, totalitarian governments that, that, that have uh, ruled for, you know, uh, over the last you know, several hundred years, really, that a lot of the ways they were able to gain that power was by control of the media and social media is very democratizing in that way where ever anyone can have a voice and work around that process but you know at the same time you know we to to uh, it's obviously has inspired more than just the kind of hopeful nature that folks like Wes and myself uh, have always advocated as one of the powers of this is giving everyone a voice um, in, in a positive way. That shouldn't then mean that we take draconian efforts to limit them. And so there's a middle ground here. And I'm really excited to read that Facebook article that you mentioned, because I'd kind of like to see what some of those discussions look like. And I'm sure they're complicated, right? And uh, your point is very well taken that Facebook, Twitter, these are not governments. There's no 
no constitutional right to speak over Facebook. You had a constitutional right to speak, but the Internet grants you many channels uh, to speak beyond Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it's now effortless to come up with a website. Like, even 20 years ago, there's a technical barrier to that. That no longer exists. You can go to uh, Squarespace or Wix or any of the uh, very easy site builders and create you know, speech to your heart's content. But does that justify Twitter banning X voice or Y voice? Does it, does it justify Facebook, the biggest social media platform on earth, from doing that? I don't know the answer to that, but those are questions and discussions we need to start having, you know, really right now. And hopefully, in amidst all these changes, we're not going to break the internet, right? And we're not going to. Right. Kill innovation uh, and also kill expression. Another article under this social media correction headline is from Wired magazine on September the 4th. It's titled Google wants to kill the URL. It's a little bit misleading because they're really wanting to transform it, but they're talking about I identity and uh, credibility and, you know, how can you promote that? And so with Google's Chrome browser turning 10 and then Google overall, then they just turned 20 where there's both, both anniversaries that we've talked about in the last week or so. I think mm -hmm. I know, I know Chrome is 10. Um, you know, it's, it's talking about how uh, they've tried to roll out some things before in terms of uh, um, a formatting feature called the origin chip. It only showed the main domain name of sites to help, uh, ensure that users knew what domain they're actually browsing on. I mean, we see this all the time with phishing, PH, phishing, you know, where folks are sending you a link and it's really not Google right. Docs, it's really not the bank, it's somebody else's address. But this is a, a very, you know, mainstream issue now with digital literacy is recognizing how dangerous it is you know, sometimes to even click a link that you get an email, but certainly to log in from a link that you receive an email. And so, you know, as they are with many things, Google is trying to address this. And so they're not they're not trying to kill the URL. I think that's a bad headline. But what they are trying to do is really address the issue of identity and, you know, helping people make judgment calls about right. v validity and, and, and ownership of, of sites and, and things like that. Okay, uh, let's see here. Um, I think we could either take on the bigger topic of privacy or we could do a bunch of one-offs. What's your preference? Let's let's do some one-offs. Where do you okay. want to start? Uh, this one was pretty interesting to me, uh, and I saw some news here too, and so I threw the link in. The FCC has decided um, to pause their review of the Sprint and T-Mobile uh, uh, merger, and we've talked about this a number of times in the past, but um, um, uh, basically, probably good for consumers, probably not good for consumers. It's not really clear yet, but numbers three and four on the major cell phone carrier list have decided to merge, and uh, the FCC has decided to stop their current investigation, which essentially means they could spend more time digging into whether there are antitrust issues or there are consumer issues. Um, and uh, I, I, mean, I, I, I think we have to have this conversation. I think getting rid of one of the, the four majors is a is a real problem if it could lead to less competition. But I generally think that this merger is a good idea. Any thoughts about this, Wes? Well, it's interesting. We've talked about this uh, in the context of Facebook and calls for breakup and what's the litmus test. And antitrust in the United States basically looks at impact to consumer. 
So I think that we need to revisit that and look beyond. Um, and of course, it has a lot to do with the administration that's in power as well. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's good that we had some corrections that happened during the what we call the Gilded Age of, of the United States and Standard Oil, you know, didn't didn't reign over everybody. And I think we've got to face those kinds of com those conversations and questions as a society. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we will. Sure. Absolutely. My one. Where next? No, go ahead. Oh, no, I said where next? Yeah. My net, my one off is going to be uh, from the New York Times. Um, this article is called New Antarctica Map is like putting on glasses for the first time and seeing 2020. This is from September the 7th. Um, the subtitle is a high resolution terrain map of Earth's frozen continent will help researchers better track changes on the ice as the planet warms. And here's the paragraph that just blew me away. Previous maps of the continent had a resolution similar to seeing the whole of Central Park from a satellite. With this new data, it is now possible to see down to the size of a car. And even smaller in some areas, the data is so complete that scientists now know the height of every feature on the continent down to a few feet. I mean, that is amazing. So I'm a geography guy. I love maps. And how um, you know fantastic is that to have that kind of a tool and a resource? And to mention the surveillance aspect of that, keep in mind that the U.S. military and our security services and probably those of many other countries that have lots of money to spend are even better than that, you know, because that's a declassified public resource that's available. So, yeah, be careful what you do outside because. Uh, so it's interesting because my uh, in-laws just returned actually from the North Pole, having gone to Antarctica uh, last year uh, as part of a cruise. And um, I I was very interested in their trip. It's not, these are not destinations I would say are on, you know, the top uh, 10 or 20 of my list. Although, to be honest, I, I had an extremely long bucket list when it comes to to uh, uh, to travel. But yeah, this is uh, even, even in these relatively low resolution New York Times. Uh, uh, images. These are, are quite stunning visually. Uh, Twitter made an announcement. Twitter and Periscope now offer audio only live broadcasts. This is from Engadget on September 7th. So you can still, um, you know, be able to broadcast live on, on Periscope with video. But it's kind of interesting thinking that, you know, there's going to be venues and, and situations where audio is going to be a better fit. Um, I have not listened to any of these yet, but would be interested in testing that and especially finding out like how long can you download it? Because even with Periscope, there were some different things I was using that you could hook to your account so you could download the files. And I mean, I wouldn't want to do something that's so ephemeral that it's just, it's gone forever. Like this show, I, th I mean, I am absolutely confident looking at the download statistics that there's far more folks who listen to this after the fact, you know, that are able to tune in live. So right. have you tuned in at all? And does that in pique your interest at all for, for Twitter? It does in that, like, I, I've always thought Twitter as this kind of real-time engine for, for communication. I, I think that, it, uh, watch out, to be honest, it's the, this article is interesting to me because I was looking for an alternative Twitter app the other day uh, on my Android phone just to try a new one out, and I was surprised the pair scope was still was still available actually I didn't realize that it was uh, still around and what's what's interesting to me is that I don't see a lot of live video um, on at least my my Twitterverse anymore it feels like that's gone largely to Facebook video which I do see a lot of live video on and then I, I feel like Instagram is really kind of taking a lot of the the oxygen out of the air on that particular feature but I I, I do think that Twitter 
is trying to do something that I think is quite interesting. Like when it comes to live video and audio, this notion of on-the-ground news gathering, which I know is mentioned in the article, like that is very interesting to me that, you know, when, when something goes down and you go to Twitter to, to kind of find out details, if a radio station could offer their live stream in that location to be next to the, the kind of on-the-ground news report, that is fascinating and could be something that I think is very useful and, and, and a useful tool. But um, obviously, you know, I don't watch any video on Twitter at this point and can't think of the last time when I did. This could be a last-ditch effort to take a, a model that just for whatever reason hasn't worked out. Interesting with the hurricane that's about to batter the east coast of the United States, how our live social media tools for those folks that are not evacuating are going to play into that because you can be confident that folks will hopefully not be risking their lives, but they're going to be in some dangerous places, you know, capturing some some video via social media and they're probably not going to be doing audio. They're going to be you know, capturing video. But anyway, that's something that's happening with every natural disaster or the thing that happened is everyone's technology capacity is increasing as well as the, the bandwidth that's available. Right. Absolutely. Uh, one more quick one off. This is space.com. Uh, this is a little while. Well, yeah, it's last month. It's August 17th, but I, I totally missed this headline. Uh, that was crazy. NASA's Opportunity rover on Mars still silent two months into an epic dust storm. I didn't know that there was a dust storm that fired up in June on Mars, which encompassed the entire planet. And so I was like, what? And so Opportunity um, was only supposed to really be active for like 90 days. And here it's what, like 12 years later or something? I should get the exact statistics since I'm being recorded. Um but yeah, it's it, it's still going. Um, it's, so yeah, Spirit got bogged down in a Martian sand trap in March 2010. The rover couldn't reorient itself to catch the sun and froze. Uh, NASA declared Spirit dead in 2011. Curiosity is nuclear powered. It's not affected by the dust storm. Um, and let's see if it says... Uh, anyway, I'm not finding the date when it said it, it actually went off. But I mean, how cool is that? And my son, I think he just went to a job fair at... Carl School of Mines day before yesterday and on his website and whatever he's still he's talking about, you know, wanting to develop robotic, um, you know, devices for planetary exploration and all this. And, you know, it's real. We're doing this now on the red planet. So if your kids don't know about that, that's a great curiosity link to share with them. And um, pretty exciting to ponder where, you know, their their STEM skills with coding and block based coding, whether they're spheros or other kinds of little robots that they're they're driving, you know, that's where's where that going to take them into space and beyond? Right, absolutely. And yeah, I just try to wrap my brain around the notion of a, of a planet-wide uh, uh, a dust storm, right? And it also, like, and I, for some reason, the last couple of weeks, I've done some driving in the last two weeks, and so I, I have increased my podcast, um, and I listened to one last week, I think it was the Freakonomics podcast that was talking about the difference between, they called it the profit and the uh, kind of techno developer, like who would end up solving our environment, the, the, the profit that's telling us to, to conserve or the, the kind of techno innovator that, that's going to innovate our way out of, of global warming. And they, there was a lot of talk on that podcast about Mars as kind of an escape valve for that. And if you start to think about that, yes, except that if we, it is a planet that, that where there are months long planet wide dust storms, you're going to have to live indoors the whole time anyways, right? It's unlikely Mars would, would be inhabitable in a way we would inhabit Earth. But still, it's, it's incredibly fascinating to think about that. And and um, 
yeah, uh, I, lot of lot of energy around the Mars issue, and it obviously it hasn't been quite as inspiring as the moon landing was um, in the 1960s, but uh, certainly uh, something that the you know, nerds of the world like ourselves certainly love to keep an eye on. Well, shout out quickly to the novel The Martian and the book by the same title. If you haven't seen that, uh, it's a great movie, and I uh, just had a chance to see that a little bit. Uh, well, uh, I think it was over the Labor Day weekend again. So, unfortunately, we are abbreviated tonight because Jason is the the big man on campus in the Twitter chat coming up in three minutes. So, I'm afraid that if you've got a quick additional article and then we need to do uh, Geeks of the Week to get out of here. Yeah, this one's just a silly one, but The Verge uh, said today that Microsoft is testing a warning now for Windows 10 users not to install Chrome or Firefox, which uh, it's if, if the, the screen shot has any fidelity to it. It's basically Edge is the safer and faster browser, which is funny because that's not really the messaging of Windows 10. It usually will say that that it's faster than one and safer than the other because that's what the stats say is that it's a, it's a good average browser, but it, and I can't remember which one is which. Either Firefox is faster or Chrome is faster and the other one is safer. So I think this is a bad idea, Microsoft. You should be encouraging people to download other browsers, um, uh, especially since that, well, I think Edge is a decent browser, much better than Internet Explorer. Having all three browsers on your computer is actually the power user move. So look out for that warning coming with the October update of Windows 10. Very good. And how about some Geeks of the Week? I'll do a quick one that um, I uh, saw as news over the weekend, but something that my, my wife and I discovered a couple of years ago, and it's, it's kind of an awesome thing. Um, when I am working really hard, especially on a weekend, I like to take an afternoon nap. Naps are a great joy of mine, but the problem, of course, with naps is that if you don't, if you don't do it right, you can end up extraordinarily groggy and not get the kind of boost you need to move on. Well, there's this thing called a caffeine nap, which is where you suck down a cup of coffee, you take a nap for about 20 minutes, and by the time you set your alarm to wake back up, the caffeine from the coffee is kicked in. So not only get you blissful 20 minutes of sleep, you then time it to where the, the little bit of sleep plus the caffeine will work together to give you maximum awesomeness. And so as it turns out, uh, there's more formal information available on that, and Lifehacker has all the details on a good coffee-enhanced nap. Awesome. And my Geeks of the Week are two books. The Internet of Garbage by Sarah Jiang is a free ebook uh, talking about the correction and the challenges of moderating content. Uh, not one that I've read yet, but it's on my reading list. And one more that fits in that category is Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism by Sophia Noble. And that one is not available free, but it is available on Amazon. And you can also listen to it on audio. And I think that just... Again, speaks to this idea of ethics and how are we going to be talking about these things in, in the context of digital citizenship, but also STEM and coding. These are important issues, and these books, I think, will increase our knowledge base. So, Jason, where can we find you when you are not sharing incredibly enlightening and up-to-date news updates here on the EdTech Situation? Here in my well, I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. I blog for the Tech Savvy Teacher blog at blog.cc.org. And I am the Assistant Director at the Montana Digital Academy, Montdigacad on Twitter. 
Um, and you can spot me in all those locations, trying to engage positively and productively on the old internets. What about you, Wes? Are you going to be on Tech Savvy Teach for the Twitter chat here? In the- I will, yes, in a couple of moments. That's correct. All right. And I am W. Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. Have rebooted my video uh, library at playingwithmedia.com. And I'm still the director of technology at the Cassidy School. So thank you for tuning in. Please check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. Generally, we will have a 60-minute plus show. Uh, about 65 minutes is probably our average. But tonight, I will take the blame. Uh, glad that you have tuned in. And please check us out next week. And we will probably be back at our regular time, which is 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. Good night, everybody. Good night.